So the question for this week uh, came through a kind of convoluted uh, set of emails that I had with Bruce Damer probably about three weeks ago now with regards to Scott Davis's demonstration at Graysum. And Bruce was concerned that there was still a relatively tight definition with regards to what artificial life was and that it needed to have some at least tacit connection back to something that looked like genetic algorithms or things of this nature in order to be classified as, as artificial life that a, a grey thumb could support. And as you may guess from previous narratives, my sense was that if there wasn't artificial life in Scott Davis's Mars simulation, there certainly would be after he presented it at a grey thumb, and I think that may be the feedback from the Graysum Unplugged of Tuesday night, although I'll, I'll wait for more from Scott and the other participants with regards to that. But it did pose a, a relatively interesting question with regards to the role of genetic algorithms in contemporary artificial life and whether there was a class of contemporary artificial life that didn't have to contain genetic algorithms or where the genetic algorithms were so completely abstracted as not to really be connected to the original genetic algorithms. And then another thing happened. I am doing chapter review currently for nature-inspired informatics, which means that I need to be relatively careful with regards to my descriptions associated with this, but a majority of the chapters that I have reviewed have been with regards to the cutting edge associated with genetic programming and genetic algorithms. And the thing that struck me reading through these chapters is that both these, well, genetic programming is a subset of genetic algorithms, but both these fields have moved in a distinctly different direction over the past decade, over the past 15 years, than how they were originally adapted in Carlson's blockies and various other uh, movement-based genetic algorithm artificial life simulations. So here we have two different directions, the kind of cutting edge associated with genetic algorithms and genetic programming. Genetic programming in particular I found uh, fascinating, and it's a pity we don't have Adam Eremenko on to discuss his own. Was Adam Eremenko's project called Nanopond, or was it Micropond, Gerald? It was Nanopond. That was just one of uh, several projects he's done. Yeah, I couldn't remember whether it was uh, nano or micro, but there is another project called Micro Pond. I'm, I'm actually looking forward to, I don't know if either of you eat sushi, but I'm looking forward to Pond Zoo coming out in the near future. I think if you're thinking of creating a, a future pond, perhaps call it Pond Zoo. So in terms of genetic algorithms and genetic programming, Gerald, do you keep up to date with the kind of current literature? Uh, I can't uh, spend all the time pouring through papers or anything like that. No, uh, it's, uh, that would be that would be a, a full-time job. Certainly what struck me was that it had moved, and there was a lot of beauty in there as well. I mean, I don't want to get too deep into it to identify the specific chapters that I reviewed, but there were things associated with what you've discussed in terms of Darwin at home, planets and islands and uh, isolated entities and evolution, which was being used in a very applied fashion with regards to genetic programming in particular. Ed, where has your reading been with regards to genetic algorithms and do you feel that you, you kind of enter the discussion with a contemporary understanding? I love the wiki, so I'm a, I'm a wiki guy. So if the wiki's up to date, then I'm up to date. So I pretty much read the wiki for the, uh, the genetic programming, genetic algorithm, and I kind of read off on the, the, you know, the extended links here and there. So did a little research last week just to make sure I was ready for this week. I, I do like some pieces of it, but some pieces I go, well, the genetic algorithm, algorithm is really kind of like a search function. So 
I use that kind of start and use that more like every day, but I don't know if I could say I've actually, you know, seen someone else's genetic algorithm code other than what was on the wiki. It was very interesting. It's basically a, a lot of searching, a lot of comparing, which uh, we use a lot today uh, because there's huge databases, thousands of analyses, and trying to go through and figure out how those all relate and what the comparisons between, you know, genotypes and phenotypes are is, uh, is very important research today. Uh, and I think most biotechs are doing that. And a lot of the other, like, I listen to uh, proteomics podcasts, and they they talk periodically about, you know, using algorithms to find those relationships to build, you know, biomarkers. That's pretty cool. The the genetic programming, it seems in a, it has that the fitness function and fitness landscape component, which, you know, sometimes I say I like it, but then sometimes I say, well, I don't like it. I'd rather just, if I want to say that this is evolving in its life, then just let it evolve in life. But I know you have to have some degree of, well, when does it become so that you have to degrade it? Or when two things combine, how do you combine them? Do you shove the, uh, you know, the methods and the data from one process to another? Or uh, do you let them battle something out and one dies away and the other one takes over and consumes the other one? by just, you know, dumping its object into the other process. I'm kind of debating it. So, Gerald, in your reading of, of Nanopond, do you see that as being a genetic programming example? There was this question that came up, uh, you know, what's, what's artificial life with respect to artificial intelligence? Uh, you know, what's the, what's the difference? And, and uh, my feeling is that uh, something... You know, something about artificial life would have it sort of occupy every available resource if it can. And then, you know, when the situation becomes uh, unlivable because everything is occupied, then there's some sort of competition to maintain a position in, in, in the available resources. So artificial life is sort of a hungry mechanism, I think, more than artificial intelligence, which is more focused on accomplishing a particular goal. Artificial life, I think, is, um, is trying to accomplish its own goal, and that is just to occupy resources and uh, and survive. So, I mean, I think the missing link with regards to genetic programming, which was specifically why I asked about nanopond, is this idea of embodiment. And what you're doing with Darwin at Home is obviously embodying genetic algorithms in something that moves. And the difficulty with regards to genetic programming examples is really finding the the embodiment component. I think we have plenty of examples of genetic programming in artificial life context, but they all tend to be a kind of Cool War style abstraction, which doesn't in any way relate to, well, it can in an abstract sense relate to movement, but it doesn't relate to evolving entities that are uh, in some visualized form. And this got me thinking because I've been talking progressively as we've had people on about Dick Gordon's idea of artificial non-life and whether the missing element of what Dick Gordon was talking about is ultimately a kind of genetic programming model where rather than having created joints and a kind of Carl Sims blocky movement genetic algorithm component, you actually have something which is far more random and far more abstract. I mean, the real beauty of genetic programming is the vast cull rate initially in order to get things which are actually functioning and surviving, you need to go through a lot of iterations and it eliminates all the garbage relatively quickly. And I think with regards to 3D movement, 3D visualization of artificial life, I mean, this could be a fascinating method. The question behind that, though, is, is it 
a direct representation as it is in something like Nanopond, or is it an abstracted representation as it is in something like Darwin at Home? And I think this is your your blind watchmaker metaphor currently, Gerald, that there needs to be a, almost a kind of internal working in order to represent the external visualization. How does that fit into your thinking, Gerald? What I'm working on now is something that um, is intended to sort of let people step back from the idea of a phenotype and, and uh, just concentrate on, on the genotype and then use the genotype to you know, build phenotypes in, in a variety of different domains. So to sort of to disconnect the two into a, a kind of an abstraction. I'm wondering from Ed, by the way, what uh, he, he talked about uh, the genetic algorithms as a sort of a search mechanism. Does, uh, in, in, in what respect, Ed, does it go beyond that? And when does it go beyond? It's a good question. I don't know about that, but we use it in a way that if you have something uh, simple like, you know, you name a disease, that algorithm should search through, but it's not going to be like a plain text search. It's going to be a relational search and, a, you know, a lot smarter search. It's going to say, well, I know this disease, and can I drive that all the way down to the phenotype of the disease, and then how does that relate to the, to the DNA? Is there a sense I mean, of competition among several? I mean, several processes like, running at, at the same time. Yeah, like several processes running at the same time and then one being slightly more successful than the other, so uh, reproducing more often and that sort of stuff. Is that, is that related or not? Not at this time, but that's my concept to do it. Right now we just have a single search that, I, that I've seen, but I've written a fork uh, mechanism that will fork out a thousand of them if I want. So I, I'm seeing that, yes, uh, forking would absolutely be possible and would be a good idea but it may be straightforward in the work I'm doing at, at work. But now the work I do at home, you know, I see, you know, a fork of, of a, a couple thousand things, and then within each of those forks, another couple thousand things, and they all go down a certain path until we say, okay, kill it for whatever reason, because of the, the, the fitness test says, okay, you've reached your end of life, but all those processes still running, and they, they have maybe another thing that checks and makes sure that all stays running, but not on the same computer, so it's over... Uh, multiple computers, and they all talk, you know, via, you know, just a simple port communication so that, you know, if somebody walks up and turns off their computer, well, did my whole organized pond stay alive? And if it didn't, well, why did why did one computer shut off, kill maybe a thousand processes that were all unique beings inside the pond? But, you know, that's pure randomness now coming into play. So um, my goal is to capture pure randomness, power going out, and, but having it spread across and they all kind of communicate. And the utility of genetic algorithms in this application is very interesting because this is also the claim made by the wrong-term intelligent design folk with regards to all these kind of constructions. That basically it's, it's predetermined in terms of the actual creation of the genetic algorithm. And this is the, the interesting thing associated with the kind of raw application of genetic algorithms. Now, in my own conceptual realm, I think of genetic programming as being considerably more honest in terms of those kind of critiques, but my feeling also is that there is a similar optimization towards a predetermined goal associated with genetic programming. It's just my own naivety associated with that in terms of an additional layer of kind of wonder. Part of Zan's critique was these tools are only a component of the process. 
and whether you have chaotic noise, whether you have some ordered intelligence either coming through the genetic programs or the genetic algorithms that then manipulates back into the process. I mean, there need to be additional components in there as well, which broadens the scope of this evening's discussion to the to the show topic in terms of purely by creating genetic algorithm examples, the blocky creatures, these kind of things. Is that all that is necessary for artificial life? Or is a apparently chaotic environment or things that give a aurora selection pressure, are these things that need to be part of artificial life simulations as well? Ed, what's your thinking with regards to that? Mine is that I w- what I would like to see is that the the genetic algorithm you have like an environment that runs a genetic algorithm that a person may write. So he owns a large series of of boxes. They all intercommunicate. They all create this environment, and then another person slaps their algorithm on top of it and kind of intercepts it and mutates it with their per se programming is going on. Yeah, you have to use the same language possibly or maybe not. But that would give you lots of randomness. It would take you away from the, I would think, the intelligent design and, and allow you to have this view of how is true randomness, you know, two different programs, multiple different styles, and they would layer on top of each other and we just layer them up and up. And so someone would build the foundation, the pond, the water, and then, you know, someone would build the sun and then someone would put organisms in it. And they would be separate programs, but they'd all be able to communicate, talk to each other, and things would actually, you know, go down because things have to go down. People would shut the computer off and like that and see if it could survive and mutate and then repair itself. But let the program do that. You know, sooner or later we have to pull the hand out and just let it see if it can communicate and move and, and, and repair itself. That's, a, that's when I think the actual thing is, you know, fully alive when it can do that. And what's your thinking with regards to this question, Gerald? I don't know. It just it occurs to me, I mean, I remember a while ago, uh, this idea of embodiment, which is uh, which is fascinating, uh, the, because simulating embodiment in, in the computer is, is an incredibly difficult task, and people have uh, created embodied uh, robots where, you know, all you do is you have the, the sensory organism or sensory mechanism and uh, and the intelligence inside of one of the individuals and then you have a whole bunch of individuals occupying a, an environment so basically you know all the physics of it all the you know proximity and and the environment is a given you know it's, it doesn't have to be computed you just deal with the information that's coming in via the senses you don't have to simulate that entire universe that's the sense of embodiment that struck me the most with respect to um, what Ed's just talking about now reminded me of the evil grid idea where you know different uh, different people are involved creating different things but the whole is is when all the different parts speak with each other does that does that make sense to you tom what he was just describing was uh, several Definitely. different uh, people writing software and that working and one layering on top of the other that reminds me of sort of the evo evo grid vision well in its simplest form it's something like cool wars or these kind of environments in, in its simplest form but ultimately you know that's the the dream of the evo grid as well If I could frame the question slightly differently, Gerald, if you saw a a simulation environment and things that looked lifelike, do you assume that there would be a need for genetic algorithms or would you be happy with artificial life to exist without genetic algorithms? Genetic algorithms are often, you know, really set 
to accomplish a particular purpose. If you listen to Ed, he's trying to, you know, discover things in, in huge sets of data, you know, relational things, very, very difficult things to find. Whereas, you know, when it comes down to it, the reason we have biology is because a replicator appeared, you know, something, a, a, a molecular pattern that was able to create copies of itself appeared. And that's that's the end of the story, more or less. You, know, you get, if you have a replicator, then uh, you know, the world fills with replicated versions of this. And then uh, once that's uh, completely full, then, then they, there's a competition to uh, to continue replicating. And there's uh, one is more successful at replicating than another. And so you get certain variations that, that are more successful and start to dominate the population depending on the available environment and uh, the dimensions of the challenge, if you will, they, they, it continues and continues and, and develops more and more solutions to the problem of surviving. In a way, the genetic algorithm approach is, you know, very intentional, very very set up to accomplish a particular purpose, whereas artificial life uh, in, in a, you know, in one of those core wars sort of uh, pond idea, all you have to have is replication and interaction proximity. The selection should, in, in an artificial life simulation, it sounds like the selection should be sort of automatic because everybody's trying to replicate and there's there's no space for infinite replication. Genetic algorithm is sort of implicit in an artificial life simulation where you know each replicator is is uh, intent upon surviving and, and occupying as much space as possible. So I reflect somewhat comically that that was exactly my argument maybe 18 months ago when we had a conversation. Yeah, well, I guess I guess I've come around, Tom. I guess uh, here's an interesting question back to you, Gerald, with regards to that because I think the component that has always interested me is actually the life cycle. And when you talk about simulated creatures that have an extended life cycle, I mean, for example, what I do in Noble Ape, Ed has, you know, some primary contact with this as well, obviously working at Lily. I mean, in terms of the, the kind of human or even relatively simple mammalian life cycle, there is so much that goes on in that living period. There's so much subtlety, so much interaction with the environment, so many choices that are made. Is that a component of artificial life as well, or should we stick just purely to the idea of mass replication and then, you know, survival of the fittest and re-replication or should we start exploring more about the life cycle component, which I think was partially Zan Gill's narrative last week as well. What's your thinking with regards to this, Gerald? Well, a life cycle, if you're talking about a simulated organism, if you want to imitate nature, then there's going to be some sort of, you know, life cycle in which the time comes to, you know, mate and, and give birth. You know, in, in a virtual scenario where you don't, uh, where you don't feel obligated to imitate you know, biology, that life cycle can take on probably very different forms. And uh, in the end, it just comes down, you know, when, when the challenges are, when the uh, environmental challenges are diverse and changing and, and unpredictable and uh, et cetera, just like, like it was for biology, then it comes down to just one thing. And that is, can you, uh, can you persist into the future by, uh, by creating uh, new individuals? Probably the, the very basic thing about life cycle is just simple simple idea of a limited lifespan so that that obligates each individual to uh, you know to replicate itself and uh, create progeny as soon as you uh, introduce a limited lifespan you've got you've got the challenge in place richard dawkins 1976 mimetics 
this is obviously talking to Jamie he's written mimetic simulations but also I guess with regards to things that I've tried to do in Noble Ape and also when we have Larry on I'll talk to him at an extended length with regards to Polyworld there are ideas of culture or intergenerational intelligence and I'm fascinated to talk to Larry about Polyworld mythology but there are these things that are passed on within the life cycle that carry on past the life cycle as well that a number of artificial life simulators I'm thinking about Paul Johnson and other people that we've had on are interested with as well. How does this fit into your description, Gerald? I'm not sure. Do you want to frame that another way? There are artificial life simulations that deal with the formation of societies, culture moving through. Jamie talked about the, the whispers, Dawkins' paper. There are these kind of ideas that interest artificial life developers as well. I mean, if you want to look at Bioits, for example, that is a you know, classic artificial life simulation and what it's describing is simple rules for flocking movement. In terms of the context of what is artificial life, there seems to be a group that is just as much interested in multi-agent interaction and multi-agent interaction and evolution through these life cycles as there are through, as you say, with regards to replication of traditional biological genetics as applied in an artificial life context. So, I mean, what's your thinking with regards to that? Well, there are, of course, you know, a number of different uh, approaches in artificial life. But, you know, on the one hand, you've got sort of the, the genetic algorithm optimization idea or searching idea like Ed is talking about. On the other hand, you've got societies and, and uh, the evolution of cooperation, if, if, you can, uh, if you can manage that. And, of course, you've got people who are absolutely focused on creating an environment that imitates biology, like uh, Stefan's uh, plant. So there's a whole bunch of different branches of, uh, of uh, and, and one of the things that seems to be core to it all is sort of the Tierra idea or the nanopond idea where you've got uh, core wars, you've got this computer code that's, uh, that's battling for survival. So there's all sorts of different approaches to, uh, to artificial life, different angles. But if there's a shared theme, what do you think it is? Replication. That's what, that's what I would have to say is core to the whole thing. It's, and, you know, in a computer, it's fairly easy. All you have to do is say copy. When you have replication in biology, it's a huge amount of work to, to replicate. I can tell you, I've got kids. Dawkins said that it's um, a rhinoceros is, a, is an elaborate roundabout way for rhinoceros genes to produce new rhinoceros genes. You know, so there's replication is big part of you know existence in biology however in the computer it's 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 dead easy because you just say well copy this piece of memory and then you've got a replica so you know the challenges are, are completely different it's actually not really fair in the computer it's too easy to replicate but still replication is the core of of artificial life which is maybe something that is convincing to say that Artificial life is natural in a computer. You know, it's, it's very straightforward because copying is something that happens all the time. So if that's if that's the core of life is replication, then uh, then the computer is an ideal world for that. It's really easy. So Ed, in listening to this discussion, do you have any ideas or questions you'd like to put out? I, I agree mostly with it, but I, I want to add a little few things. What I like is yes, the the lower level components the you know the atoms up to the organelle stages are definitely just plain out replication and then if you would be able to layer on after you get into the actual organism 
if we can get that far and build it, but we have to build the organism, to me, on more than just one one computer. It has to be on multiple to really feel the, the changing the and ideally across continents. So there's time delays and other things that are nicely what I call random. They can inject it into the programming environment. So things can't happen all in the same simultaneous second. We're really limited when we work on just one single box. We don't get the benefit of having a huge network of multiple boxes talking to each other, creating that whole environment. And then if you could throw cognitive thought uh, on top of that, that would be very interesting how that would play out. Because if you could, you know, make something decide whether I wanted to eat or not, you know, in the, in the computer you just said, well, you eat. And the organisms eat, you know, when you get down to the lower levels of animals, they just, they eat and they sleep, and they do a bunch of basic functions. They don't really seem to show too much of the intelligence, of the thought of, well, should I go left or should I go right? You know, I go where the scent leads me like my dog. Just, we go around the block. He knows we go around the block. He sniffs every rock, and he does a, kind of the same repeated pattern. He's not very knowing. He doesn't really think about, well, why do I want to go out today? Should I go in the morning? Should I go at night? If we can get to that But he likes which be, rock he sniffs, surely. Yeah, I don't, I don't think she really cares. She sniffs every rock. Hmm. So she, she didn't really think too much. I, I, she pees in the same spot, sniffs the same rock. So I'm kind of going, well, not much thought there. I subscribe to a different school of thought that actually, particularly with regards to those kind of messaging systems, which is fundamentally what dogs are doing there, they're actually extraordinarily selective. And the whole sniffing process is actually finding the perfect patch to either mask or carry on a scent. I mean, I think this is what what fascinates me with regards to uh, domesticated canines. My sister uh, used to live in uh, Japan, and uh, they had this little dog, and she would go out, and um, she described it as the dog checking its pee mail. Yes, exactly. Yeah, wee mail is the the concept in Australia, but it's it's interesting. Okay, so here is the counterexample to this, and I'm, I'm surrounded by domestic cats, and we have a domestic dog in the other room, but cats in particular, and there's a lot of stuff with regards to uh, literature on feral cats, are very, very selective about their breeding. And you find this with humans as well. And I wanted to ask Gerald in the previous discussion with regards to the idea of the Dennett uh, religion fluke and September 11th. I mean, I think humans have an amazing ability to construct realities which stop the replication of other humans in some regard. I mean, Foucault has a lot of writing about the use of religion in terms of uh, birth control in the 16th, 17th and 18th century. But I think even in, even in you know, mammals like cats and these kind of creatures, when they're in their relatively wild form, they do actually have selective breeding and they do it based on a wide variety of factors. A large portion of them are ascent characteristics But this is something which is more than just raw genetics. This is something which is perhaps to do with intelligence, perhaps to do with things that we don't have scientific knowledge of currently. We have another caller on the line. With seven minutes remaining, I think I should probably bring this person in. Hello, Tom. This is Rudolph. Hello, Rudolph. So, Rudolph, you come in in the last seven minutes. But I'm not sure how much of the discussion you've heard. Welcome to Biota Live for a start. Thank you very much. Yes, it's the first time I'm calling in. You attended the first formal Graysum Netherlands meeting. Would you like to give some introductions? Well, I'm a biologist of the Netherlands. I've met uh, Gerald de Jong for the first time in the first Graysum meeting in the Netherlands. And my main focus is on artificial life 
using artificial life as a means to create artificial intelligence. Yeah, I'm very interested in this uh, genetic algorithm talk that you've been talking about, which I have unfortunately missed mostly. It sounds like a really interesting discussion, Tom, and I'd uh, like to thank you for all the effort that, you put, that you're putting in. Not a problem. Not a problem. It's wonderful having... Uh having folks all over listen in, and I'm, I'm interested in your particular insight. Now, I'm not sure if you heard last week's podcast, but Ed works at Lilly, and I know you have a pharmaceutical background as well. I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that the, the kind of grouping of people coming into the discussion, what we were moving towards was an idea that there may be a component of intelligence or maybe something that is sub-intelligent, which isn't part of raw genetics that relates to, I don't want to say higher order mammalian species reproduction, but that's basically the direction that I was moving in. And there are things which are interesting to explore, aside from genetic algorithms and, and the stuff that Gerald was describing, which are fundamentally part of society creating but also part of reproduction as well Gerald it's been a a somewhat disjointed way of coming around to this point but what's your thinking with regards to that well uh, you you seem to think or you seem to say that it's something beyond the genetics and and that in a way is true but in a way it's not really true because you know at the core of it the the replication is is what's happening it's a big improvement to the sort of genetic search algorithm to uh, to be able to mix and match and combine different uh, segments of uh, the replicated genome that each one, where, where each one of them has proven itself to be effective. So uh, it shouldn't be a huge surprise that most of the higher animals ha- have uh, sexual reproduction because it allows you to combine already successful traits and mix and match them, which is a lot more directed and effective than, uh, than completely random mutation. If society as an abstract and changing entity defines what the successful traits are, isn't this the problem in what you're saying? I'm not sure if it's a problem. I mean, it's, uh, the society in that case is analogous to the environment for a bacteria. You know, it just uh, it just represents the dimensions of the challenge. The way to approach it, is the the way that the organism responds to the challenge is, uh, yeah, in a lot of ways dictated by um, by its genetics, and perhaps you could say it's memetics. I mean, I would I would argue that there's a lot of memetics memetics that goes on among animals. You now, I've I've heard about an experiment, for example, where uh, an octopus became afraid because it saw another octopus becoming afraid. You know, so there's a lot of behavioral genetics, if you will, or mimetics Definitely. going on. Unfortunately, we only have two minutes remaining, so I'm going to have to wrap up the discussion this evening, but we'll need to get you all back to continue this discussion because a number of interesting topics have been raised. We also have two people in the chat room. I'd like to say hello to them. And next week, we're going to do Spore Till You Snore. I'm not sure, is Mitch going to get a copy of Spore when it's released, Gerald? Probably, probably. Uh Because I know the European release date is two days prior to the American release date, which is next Friday, hence the topic next week. I'd like to thank you all, Ed, Rudolph, Gerald, for calling in. We'll need to do this again sometime, probably continue on the discussion, maybe even with Zan Gill and others involved. Our topic next week, Spore Till You Snore. You're all invited back onto that one, but we will have Travis Savo as well and potentially others. Thank you all for calling in.